Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 78. I am your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and we have two lovely stories for you today, so sit back, grab that beverage, and relax. Let's listen to some stories. First up, we have a quick one called Mr. Green by Gary Budgen. Gary grew up and lives in London, in the UK. He has had fiction published in many magazines and anthologies. Recent stories are in Sensorama from Abenvale Press, and We Can Improve You from Boo Books. He is a member of the Clockhouse London Writers and can be found at garybudgeon.wordpress.com. It's read for you by a gentleman called Chris Mack. Chris is an enigmatic actor, voice artist, acting coach, father, and a New Yorker turned Parisienne. His credits include the animated feature Persepolis and the best-selling video game Splinter Cell Pandora Tomorrow. You can find out more at chrismack.net. And here you have it. Mr. Green by Gary Budgeon Rust fell on Maiden Road, falling in tiny flakes borne by the wind and covering the ground with burnt red like a carpet of autumn leaf. The rust covered the parked cars, the folds and intricacies of privet hedges, the broken concrete surfaces of the front yards. I saw this on the day I visited my mother for the first time in a year tail between my legs, basically skint, in hope of at least a Sunday lunch. Mr. Jutley had been washing his white BMW and was standing shaking his head at the covering of rust grains that had come from the sky. It was everywhere, even on Mr. Jutley's turban. Billy, he said as I entered my mother's yard, will you believe it had to wait till I'd finished with the car washing? It was as though we had been talking only this morning, when in fact it had been well over a year since I'd been anywhere near this part of London. Come in, dear, my mother fussed. I've got a chicken in. I'm glad you called. She treated me as though I'd done nothing, 
We even had a glass of wine together, the sort of sweet white German wine that everyone in England used to drink when they didn't really drink wine. Where does all that dirt come from? she said as I brushed flakes from my shoulder onto her carpet. It's not dirt, it's rust. Who'd have thought? I tried sipping the wine. It wasn't that it was sweet to the point of being sickly that made me sip it. I sipped it to stop from necking it and then having another. Mother had always been in denial about my habit, hence serving wine at all. What had happened last year didn't seem to have changed that. I wish I could forget it so easily. As I left, it was raining. Coming down in sheets, the rust that had been washed off everything was running down the gutter. Red, brown, creamy, and frothing, looking like a lustier wine than what had just been served up. I drew up my collar and bowed my head, ready to run the three streets to the bus stop where there would be shelter. I was a little woozy from just that drop of wine. Any booze seemed to take me straight to a place near incoherence. As I got to the end of the street, where there was a corrugated iron fence, I ran straight into someone. The rain ran over the brim of the hat he wore, down over his raincoat. His collar was up, too, shielding his face, which was further concealed by a bushy beard. Something was sticking out of his collar, a sprig of something. The spade shape of an ivy leaf at the end. He smelt, too, like the ivy, perhaps, or like cut grass left out to the elements. Some tramp, homeless, there but for the grace. I'm sorry, I said. He gripped my forearm, pulling me over to the side, pushing me so that I fell back onto the corrugated iron fence. There's a kind of honesty in rust, he said, and jutted his head forward so that his eyes were close to mine. By some trick of the rain-drenched light, his pupils, the green of garden gates, swam on a surface of aquamarine. Get off, I said. With his free hand, he pointed to his forearm where his coat had pulled back. There was a sore there, black against the green tinge of his sickly skin. Burns, he said. What does? I was humoring him, wanting to get away. Rust, the end of the age of iron. You let me go now. I need you, he said. I shook him off, could feel my heart thump as I reached into my pocket ready to thrust some coins at him. I didn't want to get angry with him, even though my head felt heavy with the wine I was determined to stay in control. No, he said, letting the silver and bronze I tried to hand him clatter to the pavement. He put his head close again and I could see his tongue was lime-colored. There were more stems poking from his collar almost encircling his head. Even the hairs of his nostrils and ears looked more like blades of grass or tiny leaves of the sort that crest plants had when we used to grow them in school. In there, he said, and pointed. One of the lower panels of the corrugated iron fence had been torn away. You must get it for me, he said. Can't go through the iron. He was gasping, and the color of his skin made him look ill. Each breath exuded a taste of old leaf meal. The rain continued to come down, the drops hanging from the brim of his hat like jewels. I was soaked. I crouched down and peered through the gap in the fence. It was some sort of scrapyard or dumping ground, but not full of recent rubbish, but rather full of relics. Although there was a general hue of rust over everything, it was possible to make out objects. There were cars that looked like they were from the 1970s. I think I recognized a Ford Anglia from the back fins. The cars were piled high and at angles, creating tunnels, caverns, shapes like collapsed huts. This must be the source of all the rust on Maiden Road. Even now the rust juice ran in runnels across the muddy ground. Puddles looked like clotted blood. Some scrapyard. And yet there was more. The cylindrical boiler of a steam loco, great flywheels, flues and chimneys of lead, chains from dockyards. It was as though someone had dumped the remnants of the industry of thirty years ago and left it to rust. There was a copper cistern, its surface covered with a patina not of red, but gentle blue-green verdigris. Not an old scrapyard at all. There, he hissed behind me, keeping back from the fence. I could see what he wanted. Beyond a line of debris was a mound of bare earth, stripped of all but a few blades of grass. On top of this mound was a stick stuck upright in the ground. Left it there, 
the man panted. During the last cycle. Need it now. Can't go through the iron. What is it? Please. Some madman. Possibly dangerous. But there was something compelling about his voice as there had been about his eyes. I stood up and looked at him again. He was like a dog that had been kicked. You couldn't be cruel. I stooped through the fence straight into one of the ruddy puddles, soaking my shoe and sock the bottom of my jeans. I tried to follow a path through the junk, but had to clamber over what I think was a septic tank. I made it to the mound. I had just a few more steps. The stick was there. I could see it, but for a moment it was as if I were trekking up a hill towards a colossal trunk, the centerpiece of some giant oak. I slipped and skidded on my knees along the mud, and was by now so wet I felt like I might simply melt into the earth. This was stupid. I was as mad as him. When I reached the stick at last, I felt a surge of triumph, a sudden energy. I couldn't have cared less about the mud and the wet. I held the stick in my hands, saw the beauty of it, the carved leaves that entwined it in a spiral. I slid down the hill laughing and ran back to where the man was waiting. When I came out of the hole in the fence, the man snatched the stick immediately, his eyes wide, the leaves and green stalks all around his face standing to attention now. His hat was set back on his head so that I could see the grassy sword of his hair. I won't fail this time, he declared. Not this time. This time I will succeed. He inspected me before he turned and went. He stood, grown tall and strong, and looked at me as though I were some sort of pet of his, some little familiar who had done well. I stood there without hostility, my head suddenly clear. I felt fresh. The rain had washed through me, had cleansed me. I will not forget, he boomed, and was gone, driving a tunnel through the sheets of rain and away into the city. I saw a lot of mother during that winter. She even had me cutting the back lawn in the rain. It gets so overgrown. And it was true. When I went out from the hostel where I was staying, I noticed how, that winter, the conifers in people's gardens looked perky, not subdued as they sometimes did in winter. Even the trees that had shed their leaves looked fresher. By spring there were strikes or something with council workers not doing what they should. Weeds grew abundantly in all sorts of places, by the side of the road, in the mud stuck in guttering, and in the cracks between the paving slabs. You should move back here, my mother said one day. I don't like to think of you living with strangers when there's a perfectly good room upstairs. She said it just like that, without any preamble, without feeling the need to rake over old ground. Bless her. I told myself that if I didn't drink for two weeks, I'd come. I'd let myself have a chance at a fresh start, and put everything that had happened behind me. The day I finally came, carrying all my worldlies in two sports holdalls, my head was clear, and all that plagued me was a heavy sense of boredom. Mr. Juttley was in the street. He was carrying something in two outstretched arms which he threw down with a heavy crash in his front yard. When he'd gone back inside, I saw it was the body of a computer, a PC. There was a keyboard and monitor there, too. Then I noticed the other front yards. It seemed spring cleaning had become a fever here. The yards were full of DVD players, laptops, televisions, set-top boxes and stereos, as well as lots of desktop computers. These piles were sprinkled with smaller items like mobile phones and handheld games consoles. When I got to my mother's, I saw that even she had caught the bug. There was her radio. I sat in the kitchen with her over a cup of tea. Something wrong with the radio? She frowned. Yes, she said. Then less certain. Well, no. I just thought I'd better... Nothing wrong with it, I said. I'll go and fetch it in. No, she said. Don't do that. We'll have a biscuit, shall we? It was always like that with her. She didn't want to talk about it. 
The fact that she was throwing out a perfectly good radio was something she didn't want to talk about. The fact that I'd pushed her downstairs when I was drunk the year before was something she didn't want to talk about. I'd only found out after I'd seen her bruises, questioned her. I couldn't even remember doing it. The next morning she was out doing one of her cleaning jobs. I could have stayed in bed, but new beginnings and all that. Something had happened to the front yard. The radio she'd thrown out had split, its cover coming off to reveal its circuit board. It had split because there was something growing on it, a stalk that must have sprouted from the ground and wormed its way through it overnight. All along Maiden Road it was the same. The piles of computers and other electronic goods had become overgrown with stalks and leaves, moss that had crept into crevices, screens becoming slick with lichen. Mr. Jutley was just leaving his house, walking past his BMW. Not going to work? I asked chirpily. He looked at me only for a second, quickly turning away. Yes, yes, and hurried on. He always drove, but today had left the car. It looked like everyone else had left their cars behind, too, with every parking space occupied. I walked into other streets, and these two were jammed with cars along the curbs. On the high street, the only shop that was open was the greengrocer's. What's going on? I asked the chubby little man there. He rubbed the apron around his belly. Mr. Green said, he protested. He said it was all right to stay open. Calm down, I said. What are you talking about? He looked at me, first in the face, and then casting a glance up and down. You'll see, he said. He's talking to everyone. That evening, me and my mother drank tea and went to bed early. We couldn't watch TV. She'd thrown it out. Is it Mr. Green? I'd asked. Shush, she said. You be a good boy and go to sleep. The next day, the spring had taken hold even more resolutely. The cars on the curb were covered in vines and trailing kudzu, their tires encrusted with brushes of moss, tinged with a soft petticoat yellow. Every shade of green was here. Even the surfaces of the streets themselves were covered with grass, bunches of chamomile, basil, and sage. The weather was brighter, too. Summer was almost upon us. Mr. Jutley sat on the mound formed by his discarded electrical goods, which was now a little hillock of turf. What do you think is going on? I asked him. Shush, he said, finger to his lip. Mr. Green. Mr. Green worked by word of mouth. The whisperings passed from person to person more effectively than broadcasting ever had. Whenever I asked anyone, they gave me a look. Was I mad? Did I not know? Did I not understand? As summer came, bright and green, London was now a garden, the streets and houses covered with blankets of vegetation and constant renewal. Fruit trees blossomed so that people lived by gathering peaches and plums. They collected water at the springs that had punctured the flesh of the earth with cool spoons. So you think it's better now? I asked my mother one day. We were beneath a damson tree, drinking clear water from her old teacups. What do you mean, love? Do you think it's better than before? But she didn't understand. None of them did. He found me on the corner, near where there had once been a corrugated iron fence with a scrapyard of a lost age behind it. The fence was gone, become dust and blown far away from this newly made world. The land was grassed hills, and on the highest of these, where the stick had been, there was great oak, enwrapped with tangles of vines. Lately I'd wanted to drink again, wanting to somehow have a holiday for myself. Everyone was so content living in this garden, the past vanished beyond the haze of a new dawn. Mr. Green no longer wore his hat and raincoat. He appeared just as he was, a human man fused with the sinews of trees. Leaves encased him, vine stalks wrapped around him, and his skin was the green of forest shadows, of the underside of leaves close to the earth. I never forgot you, he said. I could have begged him then, begged him to let me join in his new world the way the others did, but I knew that he had granted me a special favor. 
I was his witness, a witness to the marvels of Mr. Green's uprising. I would remember it all so that on some yet unrealized day of the future I could stand and testify that this time he had succeeded. And the moral of that story is, never dismiss the homeless as powerless. You never know who they really are. Next up, we have a story which comes with a backstory that is close to all of our hearts here at the District of Wonders. It's called Changelings, and it was written by a wonderful lady named Melanie Tem. Her work has received the Bram Stoker, International Horror Guild, British Fantasy and World Fantasy Awards, and a nomination for the Shirley Jackson Award. She published over 100 short stories, 12 solo novels, two collaborative novels with Nancy Holder, and two collaborative novels and a short story collection with her husband, Steve Rasnick-Tem. Among her novels were Prodigal, Wildling, Revenant, The Yellow Wood, her latest, and Black River, a fictional exploration of grief as a hero's journey. She was also a published poet, an oral storyteller, and a playwright. As a social worker and administrator, she worked for the elderly, the disabled, and adoptive children and their parents. In fact, a speech of hers on unconditional commitment is still used in parts of the country in the training of prospective adoptive parents. She had four children and six grandchildren. Melanie passed away in February of this year from metastatic breast cancer. As editor of Far-Fetched Fables, I have narrated this story in tribute to her life and work. Some more of Melanie's stories narrated by herself will be available to download as of 25th of October. You can find the link to those on the Triple F website. And so, dear listeners, here it is. Bridget sat quietly in the house of the creature who had stolen her child. In her hand was a mug of the best coffee she'd ever tasted, strong and aromatic and still hot even though she'd been mostly ignoring it for some time. On the table at her elbow was a bowl of dry roasted peanuts, which even under the circumstances she had a hard time resisting. They nearly filled a dark, thick wooden bowl of an odd shape, whose polished planes made her want to keep running her fingertips over it. An old Waylon and Willie tape of love songs was playing, one of her favourites. The creature knew. Crystal and Cynthia were practising jump rope chants and cheers on the front porch. Bridget could see them through the window, although there were odd distortions in the pane. The heavy bone-coloured shade was rolled at the top now, and she guessed that when it was down, no one would be able to see inside this house at all. Sometimes she just glimpsed movement on the porch, sometimes she caught a little face or body in stylized animation. She kept a watchful ear and eye on them, terrified that now she had finally found her real daughter, she would somehow lose her again. She'd recognized the child called Cynthia. Not a bad name, not one she would have chosen, but not bad. She wondered if she'd have to change it. The moment she saw her on the school playground... She'd known for sure when Crystal started bringing her home to play, to have dinner, to spend the night. The girls were so different from each other that Bridget knew they wouldn't have been friends if it hadn't been meant for her to right the wrong. Cynthia was like her, shy, 
not good with words, unable to stand up for long to Crystal's willfulness. Cynthia wasn't good in school, as Bridget had not been. Crystal was a star student, though she seldom paid much attention. Cynthia never got into trouble, was, like Bridget, skilled at discerning rules and following them. Bridget was forever getting notes or having to attend conferences about Crystal's behaviour, stealing, fighting, talking back to the teachers, which she was powerless to affect, though she tried everything she could think of. Cynthia, like Bridget, never called attention to herself by achievement or by misdeed. Crystal was in the spotlight all the time. Cynthia looked like Bridget, of course, the same wide-set pale blue eyes, flawless skin like white tissue paper, pink lips, hair somebody had once called flaxen. Crystal was dark, darker every year, and the palm-shaped birthmark on her right cheek more distinct. Her skin was coarse, her hair thick and wild with a terrible cowlick on the crown of her head that no comb or brush or pick would go through, her mouth so naturally red that Bridget would have suspected her of sneaking makeup and would have punished her if it hadn't been that colour since the first day of her life. Sometimes, because it had been, Bridget punished her anyway. Crystal's eyes changed colour with her mood and with what she was wearing, but they were not the subtle, suggestive colour called hazel. They were brilliant green, violet, vivid brown, translucent grey, utter black. Crystal's eyes made Bridget shudder. She'd always avoided looking directly into them. Through the screen door, Bridget could hear Crystal and Cynthia whispering together now, like any other eleven-year-olds in the half-welcome company of their mothers. Cynthia was giggling. Crystal never laughed. Dressed in yellow, went upstairs to kiss a fella, made a mistake, kissed a snake, how many doctors will it take? Cynthia stumbled over the rope at the count of seventeen. They started the chant again, and Crystal was still going at fifty-three. Bridget wasn't surprised. Crystal had always been unnaturally strong and well-coordinated. She herself wasn't the least bit athletic, and she didn't go to Crystal's games and exhibitions any more because she couldn't bear to see how accomplished the child was, how alien. "'Can I get you anything?' asked the creature, who went by the name of Cathy. It was an ordinary name. It was an ordinary, hospitable question. All this normalcy and friendliness only gave away her true nature, and so did her hands, which hovered with obvious intent over every object she touched, whether she ended up using it or not. And her eyes, which looked directly and audaciously at you, changing colour even as you struggled to avoid meeting their variegated gaze. Her eyes, like crystals, were ringed with lashes so thick and dark that they made Bridget think of moustaches or, disturbingly, of pubic hair. "'Do you need anything?' Cathy asked again, looking at her. "'No,' Bridget lied. "'No, thanks.' The girls' chanting had become more brazen, their delivery more sultry, and Bridget saw Crystal strike a sexy pose that looked much less like childish parody than it should have. Cynthia copied, but she was just an embarrassed little girl mimicking her elders. Crystal had a full bust line already, enhanced over Bridget's objections by a padded bra. Through the little girl shirt Cynthia always wore, Bridget had noted that her breasts were just developing, and that one of them was larger than the other. Cinderella, dressed in red, got a snake to take to bed. He's too skinny, said her mother. Go back out and get another. How many babies will they make? Before Bridget could avert her eyes to protect herself, she and the creature had exchanged maternal glances. 
Cathy sighed and said indulgently, They grow up awfully fast, don't they? Bridget took another tiny swallow of coffee and one peanut. She was afraid to say much for fear of inadvertently providing Cathy with weapons to use against her. Of course, she might be able to use silence, too. Bridget coughed loudly. Although sometimes, Cathy said, I worry that Cynthia isn't growing up fast enough. I mean, she doesn't know things now that I knew when I was seven or eight. Feeling that she should keep up the pretext of making social chit-chat, even though the creature could probably see through it, Bridget cleared her throat. <clears throat> Some of the girls in their class actually wear makeup to school. Can you imagine? In fifth grade? I fight with Crystal all the time to get her to wait. There was a pause, and then Cathy said, I try to get Cynthia to wear a little lipstick and blush, a little light eyeshadow. She's so pale, washed out. But she won't. A couple of times I've insisted, put some of my makeup on her, told her how pretty she looks, and the minute she gets to school, I know she washes it off. They're too young, was all Bridget could think of to say. Cathy didn't say anything for a while. The tape ended and the machine clicked off. She made no move to get up and put on another. There was silence from the porch as well. Nervously, Bridget leaned forward until she could see the girls crouched together in a corner. She didn't like the look of it, but, like so many things about Crystal, there was nothing so specifically objectionable that she could protest or punish or forbid. Crystal gestured animatedly, long painted nails glittering, and she was talking a lot, while Cynthia sat with her knees up to her chin and made designs with her fingertips in the dust, then erased them gently with the flat of her hand. Bridget's heart went out to the sweet, self-effacing little girl, but she forced her body to remain in the chair, her face to stay composed. "'And she's always so good,' Cathy said, frowning. "'She doesn't have much will of her own. She never says no to anybody about anything. It's always yes this and yes that. I suppose I should be grateful that she's such an easy child, but to tell you the truth, it worries me, and it drives me crazy. When I was her age, I was quite the little rebel.' Bridget sighed. Crystal said no to everything, even if she wanted to do what she was being told to do. She delighted in pouring soup on her new dresses, looking at Bridget out of the corner of her eye to see how angry she would get. She drove babysitters away by sprinkling sand in their hair, throwing their shoes in the garbage, hiding herself behind one bush after another for hours while the babysitter and Bridget searched frantically. Sometimes she'd spend the whole day in bed just because she wanted to with the blankets pulled up to her ears, and if Bridget dared tiptoe into her room to see if she was all right, she'd shout, Get out of here and leave me alone! Sometimes she'd rise before dawn, while mist was still on the trees and the morning star was still in the dim sky, and would race around the neighbourhood, gallop on an imaginary horse, or spread her arms as if she would fly, hallooing and singing at the top of her lungs. Bridget couldn't do anything with her, no matter how severe her punishments were, how creative. Carefully now, she said, Crystal definitely has a mind of her own. You're lucky, Cathy said wistfully. Bridget thought, serves you right, and take her back then. And for a moment entertained the ridiculous notion that the two of them might simply swap children again and go on with their lives. But Cathy said, my daughter is an awfully sweet little thing, though. And Bridget's heart sank. Cathy had gold-red hair that touched her shoulders and stood out in a fan shape around her head. She was very tanned. In the dimness of the room, dark wood, spongy forest-green carpet and walls, the window and door distinct rectangles of light, she seemed to 
glow. Bridget knew that was no illusion. The creature did have a certain incandescence about her that went beyond her beauty and warmth. If Bridget hadn't known who she was and what she'd done, she'd have liked her. For a moment that made her sad, but then the loss turned to relief, a sense of having avoided great risk. It's hard, isn't it? Kathy said, being a single mother. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Bridget disliked conversations about men, tried to avoid such talk under any circumstances and certainly under these. Eleven years ago, not long after she'd realized that the infant in her care was not the one she'd born, her daughter's father, Dale, had called once from California to say he almost had enough money for her and Crystal to join him. She'd told him not to bother. He'd said all right. He'd never bother either one of them again, and he hadn't. Bridget had seldom thought about him since, except sometimes to fantasize about sending Crystal to him once and for all. Not that she was his child, either. Recklessly, Bridget said, I kind of like it myself. But it's so hard, wailed Cathy. She ran a hand through her hair so that it fairly sparked. Every decision is mine and nobody else's. Everything I want to do, there's just Cynthia and me, and there's so much I want to do, you know. I don't want to have to share my daughter, Bridget said, and then, having gone this far, added deliberately, with anybody. Do you date? Bridget frowned and shook her head. Not at all? No. God, how do you stand it? Kathy's voice carried an exact replica of the sultry tone the girls had used for their chant about Cinderella and the snakes. When she got to her feet and crossed the room to the stereo, bent to change the tape, her suggestive movements were the original of Crystal's. "'I haven't been in love lately,' she went on, her back and round hips to Bridget. "'But I need a man now and then, if you know what I mean.' Desire swept over Bridget and made her shudder so that she almost dropped her coffee. Shakily, she set the mug down. 
Nausea swelled and she closed her eyes. Waylon and Willie sang again, lyrics about things you could do something about, a melody whose passion was within limits. Cinderella, dressed in black, spent all night upon her back. Snakes went in and snakes came out, and Cinderella wondered what it was about. How many snakes can Cinderella take? Abruptly, Bridget had had enough. Crystal, she called, it's time for me to go home. The chanting paused, and Crystal appeared at the door, her face distorted as she pressed it against the screen. I want to come too. Uh, I thought you were going to spend the night, Bridget objected clumsily. I don't want to. I want to go with you. Bridget tried to open the door. Crystal pushed against it from the other side. The girl's face was twisted into one of her horrible grimaces. She was rapidly escalating towards a fierce tantrum, and Bridget was glad Cathy would see it. Very reasonably, she said, Crystal, honey, I have plans tonight. Why don't you spend the night with your friend like we planned, and I'll come tomorrow to pick you up. Behind her, Cathy started to say, Oh, maybe another time. Crystal threw herself onto the concrete floor of the porch, howling, her strong, lithe body twisted into impossible angles. No, no! She was saying more, but, as often happened when she was really upset, the words were impossible to understand. No, no, no! Bridget went outside, let the door swing quietly shut behind her, straddled the child who was not hers, and slapped her hard across the face. Cathy gasped. The birthmark flared. The strong little body rose up between her knees. She lay forward, pressed her breasts against the child's two large breasts, covered the wet mouth hard with the heel of her hand, but could not shut her up. She slapped her again. Cynthia was standing in the yard, entirely off the porch, with both hands pressed over her mouth. Bridget longed to comfort this passive, withdrawn child instead of trying to control the willful one. She knew instinctively how to be a mother to Cynthia. Bridget said in a low voice, Stop it! and slapped the writhing crystal again. Cathy grabbed her wrist. She was strong. You stop it! she cried. Crystal's inhuman howls had dissolved into sobs now, and she looked and sounded so much like a normal little girl that Bridget felt sorry for her, even loved her. Dangerous emotions. She bent and kissed Crystal's hot, rough forehead, pulled back before the child's arms could work themselves around her neck. Once Crystal had you in her grasp, it could be a terrible battle to get free. She got to her feet. I think she'll be all right now, she said, panting a little, not looking at Cathy. Her palm and her wrist hurt, and she'd probably have marks from the pressure of Cathy's fingers, as over the years she'd often had scratches and bruises from Crystal's fingers, fists and feet. I'll be back for her in the morning, she said, and left. Cynthia took a step or two after her as she went out the gate. Cathy said her name softly, and the child stopped at once. Bridget thought, Not yet, sweetheart, but soon. Crystal was a changeling. Once she'd found the name for it, found it in an unlikely book as though it had been put there for her to see, Bridget's dreams had all but stopped. But she'd never been able to exorcise the waking memories of the morning Crystal had come to her and been taken away and the other Crystal left in her place. She sat on the couch surrounded by mending with the radio turned to a country-western station. 
Once she sat down, she realised she'd have preferred a tape, but by then her lap was full of Crystal's jeans with holes in the knees, Crystal's shirts with buttons missing, Crystal's Girl Scout uniform and sash and a half-dozen new badges needing to be sewn on, Crystal's brand-new spring coat with a huge rip in the seam whose cause Crystal hadn't been able or willing to tell her, no matter how long Bridget tried to keep her in her room until she did. Bridget resented the work, the way it trapped her on the couch, the music on the radio that she didn't want to hear all of it because of this impossible child. A spring storm was building up. The radio had predicted snow, and the air through the open window at her back was much too cold. Crystal wanted windows open no matter what the weather, and Bridget was always cold in her own house. It was an old house with old windows. Closing the window would have entailed getting up on her knees and forcing the stubborn sash down. Instead, Bridget shivered angrily, bent her head over the rip in the coat, which, she discovered, extended well past the seam and was not going to be easy to fix, and was chilled and warmed by memories so familiar they had the power of ritual. Bridget had been barely sixteen years old when she'd had her baby, and alone. She hadn't seen Dale since she told him she was pregnant. Of her own father she had only one snippet of a memory, him coming into her room when she was in her crib, her wanting him to hold her, expecting him to hold her, and he didn't. She didn't think her mother could see her much through the haze of booze and dope and men in which she moved. When Bridget told her she was pregnant, her mother had laughed and cried and hugged her, reactions which didn't seem to have much to do with Bridget or the baby, and it was never mentioned again. It was mid-morning when the pain started. At first Bridget didn't know what they were, and she was afraid. And then, finally, she began the process of rousing her mother, shaking her, calling out every time a contraction hit. Sullen from unnatural sleep, her mother drove her to the hospital and dropped her off, saying something about having to get to work. As far as Bridget knew, she didn't have a job right then, but maybe she'd found one. It was possible. It was all right with Bridget to be alone. She was, in fact, glad to be alone with her pain, her blood, her beautiful baby girl. She knew how beautiful the baby was even before she was born— she said so whenever the contractions allowed her to speak. My baby is so beautiful. My baby is mine and she'll love me forever. My baby is so beautiful. When the baby was finally born, there was only a tiny ephemeral sound, a cry so sweet and shy, that Bridget, in and out of consciousness, wasn't sure she'd heard it. For a long time after she woke up, they wouldn't let her see the baby. She's sick, honey, one or another of the kind nurses kept saying. Their kindness scared her, made her want to beg them to leave her and her baby alone. But she was sick too, and very tired. So she turned her head on the pillow and went back to sleep, crying a little for her beautiful baby daughter, whom she couldn't see and could hardly hear. Crystal. The name came to her in dreams, making her think of bright colours in the midst of grey, of ordinary light turned into something extraordinary. That morning... As if they'd been waiting for the baby to have a name, a kind nurse brought Crystal to her and laid her in her arms. Tiny, pink-faced, eyes squeezed shut, very pale, very quiet, and beautiful. Oh, she's beautiful, Bridget breathed. She's sick, honey, the nurse said again. She's getting better, but she's still not very strong. Hi, Crystal, Bridget whispered her lips just brushing the lips of the baby, as if she could breathe the name into her. Crystal opened her blue eyes, moved her tiny mouth just a little. Hi there, Crystal, my beautiful little Crystal. 
The nurse took her away after a short while, and Bridget cried, but the nurse promised to bring her back, and anyway, there was nothing Bridget could do. Crystal grew stronger, and Bridget grew stronger, and the kind nurses taught the child mother as much as they could about how to take care of the child. But motherhood never did come naturally for Bridget. She always had to work hard, concentrate hard, in order to do things right. She wondered then how her mother had learned to take care of her, and whether her mother had ever thought she was beautiful. The nurses taught her how to hold the baby, how to change her and bathe her, how to nurse her, and then they sent them home. She couldn't reach her mother anywhere, so she took Crystal home on the bus. That was all right. Bridget enjoyed travelling alone with her daughter, who was still so new, but who somehow had always been a part of her life. People on the bus smiled and cooed and asked how old the baby was and what was her name, and Bridget was proud. None of them touched. None of them tried to take her baby away. They all said Crystal was beautiful. She's really a beautiful baby, one lady said. She looks a lot like you. When she got home, the house was dark and empty. It smelled of booze and dope, and she thought sex. She didn't like bringing her beautiful new daughter home to a place that smelled like that, but Crystal didn't seem to mind. Crystal lay quietly in her arms. There was no nursery, no crib even. So Bridget made a nest out of frayed blankets on the floor beside her own mattress and carefully laid Crystal there. The long trip home had exhausted her, and she was afraid of being alone in this house with a brand new baby. So she lay down on the sheets that hadn't been changed or smoothed since she'd left to go to the hospital, and with her hand close beside the baby's head, made herself fall asleep. Crystal fussed once in the night, and Bridget fed her. The baby's mouth at her nipple shamed her, but there was no one to see. The next time Bridget woke up, cold grey light was coming like footsteps in through the window. Voices from the street were shrilling sinister things like "beautiful baby" and "perfect little girl," and Crystal was gone. Bridget searched everywhere. At first, in her terror, she got confused and thought maybe Crystal had just wandered off somewhere, and she was all ready to be mad at her, maybe even spank her. Then she remembered that tiny babies couldn't wander off. That you didn't hit tiny babies, no matter what they did. Trying to stifle her panic for the sake of her child, she crawled over every inch of the dirty floor, patting and slapping at the blankets, peering under chairs, running her fingers along the grimy baseboards as if somehow the baby could have slipped down there. Crystal, she called at first in a whisper, at last shrieking the name until it lost all meaning in her own ears, except to say how scared she was, how lonely. Crystal, she stumbled out the door. The morning was quiet and grey and cold, with no colour in it. She thought she could still hear somebody somewhere talking in high-pitched voices about her perfect and beautiful daughter, but that was all. It was as if Bridget had made it all up, as if she'd never had a baby. She stood in the doorway for a long time, shivering violently, waiting for something to happen to her next. Waiting for her mother to come home and tell her what to do. Waiting for Crystal to come back and explain where she'd left. Waiting for the eerie voices to speak again and tell her what they'd done with her child. Finally, not knowing what else to do, Bridget went back into the house and curled herself into the nest of blankets she'd made for her baby. Music had started up, loud from the apartment next door. Traffic was heavy, and the people across the street were already yelling at each other. Because these were not the sounds Bridget was listening for, she tried to put them out of her mind. Desperately, she filled her mind with the words of an old prayer and the tune of a lullaby, and 
though she had to sing the same few notes and recite the same few words over and over because they were all she knew, the spell worked, and she did at last fall asleep. And woke to the squirming and hiccuping of a baby in her arms. Bridget stifled a scream and sat bolt upright, dropping the warm little thing into the tangled covers. This was not her baby. This baby was ugly. It had coarse, dark curls all over its elongated skull. Her daughter's round head had been downy. Its face was mottled red and it had a lusty yell. Her baby had been pale and silent. Across the cheek of this baby was a faint brown birthmark, as if it had been slapped hard by a small hand. Her baby's skin had been flawless, like white tissue paper when you first take it out of the package. The baby bellowed and reached for her. Instinctively, Bridget picked it up and put it to her breast. The baby sucked hard and couldn't seem to get enough. It hurt, a lot. Horrified, but grateful that she had a baby at all and hadn't made it up, Bridget looked around for the mother of this child who'd stolen hers. She couldn't see anybody, but grey light ringed her and the air was cold, like wings. Hating and loving this baby who was not her own, Bridget said, Hi, Crystal. It was the only name she knew. I'm not going. You are going. We've had this planned for weeks. Kathy and Cynthia will be disappointed if you don't go. They're already on their way over here to pick you up. You can't change your mind now. Besides, Kathy already has your lift ticket and your ski train ticket. Those things are expensive. Besides, I have plans. I won't be here. Frustration was making her prattle. Bridget forced herself to stop, adding only, You're going. It's snowing out. They said on the radio it's dangerous to drive in the mountains. You're not driving. You're going on a ski train. You just want to get rid of me. Crystal pushed past her out of the kitchen, where the windows were steamy from the kettle of vegetable soup simmering cosily on the stove. Bridget refused to be deprived of the satisfaction of making homemade soup, bread, cookies, the image of good motherhood that her own mother had never even tried to fulfil, even though Crystal wouldn't eat anything that didn't come out of a can or plastic wrap. Kathy didn't cook, probably didn't know how, and it made Bridget angry to think of what Cynthia was missing. A tin of homemade chocolate chip cookies was waiting on the counter to be sent along on the ski trip. She knew Cynthia would appreciate them. Feeling a little guilty, she did, after all, care for this difficult child, even though she was not her own, Bridget took a few steps after Crystal, reached for her, managed barely to brush her tangled hair. Crystal jerked away as if Bridget had tried to hit her. She'd always been stiff and suspicious of affection. The child had never missed an opportunity to make it clear by her very existence that Bridget was a bad mother. At the foot of the stairs, in the dim entryway, Crystal hesitated and stared back over her shoulder. Her eyes were bright black in the murky light, and for an instant Bridget thought she might attack or fling herself out into the snow. Her features, distorted so often by fury or petulance, and patterned by the birthmark that showed distinctly no matter how much makeup she wore, had a perverse beauty that made Bridget gasp. Crystal, leave me alone! the child shrieked. You don't understand anything! She turned and ran up to her room. Her footsteps were heavy, as though she weighed much more than she actually did. The staircase shook and plants teetered on the ledge. Bridget heard the bedroom door slam and felt the throbbing of music from Crystal's radio turned up as loud as it would go. Then there was the familiar noise of Crystal throwing things, slamming things into wall, breaking things.
Fury seized Bridget again, strengthening her resolve. The child was destroying the house. The older she got, the worse it was. Bridget had to do something soon. She looked outside. No sign of Cathy and Cynthia yet, but the blizzard that had gone on all night had stopped now. Surely that was a good sign. Surely Cathy would be able to make it now. Wet, heavy snow lay like corpses on the eaves, weighed down the branches of the plum trees and lilac bushes that had been just starting to bud. Mourning the delicate, fragile blossoms ruined for another season, Bridget allowed her anger with Crystal to grow. Of course the snow was not the child's fault, but it, it was, somehow. The sky was thinning grey with outlines of individual clouds starting to emerge. She should check on Crystal, make sure she was all right, make sure she was getting ready, find out what she was doing. Once, in the aftermath of an argument, Crystal had urinated all over her bed. Bridget had found her squatting on the stinking sheets and blankets, long arms around her knees, rocking and howling, and even though she'd rubbed her face in the acrid wetness and spanked her like the animal she resembled, Bridget knew Crystal was quite capable of doing something like that again. Familiar resentment made the climb up the stairs torturous, and Bridget was exhausted. When she reached the upstairs hallway, she noticed that Crystal's door was open a little, as though the child wanted to be approached. And with trepidation, Bridget pushed the door open and looked inside. Crystal wasn't there, but the room was filled with smoke. Bridget shrieked the child's name, stolen like everything else from her own daughter. Of course there was no answer. She turned on the light, turned off the radio, frantically searched for the source of the fire, found it in the closet, crumpled newspaper blackened, and Crystal's new and newly mended spring coat smouldering. Bridget wrenched open the window, gasping at the rush of cold air, and bundled the whole burning mess out into the snow. She burned her hands. There was a searing pain across both palms. Then she raged into the bathroom, where Crystal crouched in the tub, hairy knees drawn up between breasts too long for an eleven-year-old, too long and pendulous to be human at all, hair slimy with shampoo and dripping down her face, silently, waiting. She had filled the tub so full that the overflow drain couldn't handle it, and water was pouring onto the floor. Most of her body was distorted by the bluish water, and the drain gurgled whenever she shifted her weight, growled and snarled when Bridget plunged her stinging hands, her arms, her upper body into the water and dragged the child out. This was not her child. This child was not human. She was not the mother. Bridget fought with a hysterical child, clutching her in her arms. Crystal's hoarse, rattling sobs shook them both. The steel-blue snow light through the high, steamed-over little window and the agitated bath water reflected off Crystal's skin, which was greenish and coarse. She smelled bad. She had always smelled bad, as though she'd urinated on her clothes and Bridget hadn't changed her, as though Bridget couldn't keep her clean, but now her odour was rancid and nearly overpowering. Bridget warded off the child's strong blows and answered her otherworldly shrieks with shrieks of her own. Get out! Get out of my house! Soaked by now with bath water and sweat and whatever fluids were spilling from the pores and orifices of this mad creature, Bridget managed to drag her out of the bathroom and down into the much cooler living room. She tangled both hands in the thick hair and pulled the contorted face close to hers. Get out! Crystal stared at her with eyes gone luminous, colourless, all colours. 
Then, in a cracked, high voice that Bridget hadn't heard since the morning the child had come into her life, she began to chant. Cinderella, dressed in gold, always does what she is told. Don't be silly, said her mother. Go away and fetch another. How many babies will it take? One, two, three. And then she laughed. Bridget had, of course, never heard her laugh before, and she wouldn't have recognized the shrilling as laughter if she hadn't seen the wide grin, the head thrown back, the long hands over the shaking belly. The counting was wild and rapid, a spell. The child was on her, attacking or embracing, shrieking the syllables of mother, as if they'd been put into some magical new order. And then there was a rush of cold air and voices in the room, and Cathy's high-pitched commands, and Cynthia's sweet wailing, and Bridget's own shout: "Get her out of here before I kill her! Take her back and leave me my own child!" Her vision cleared somewhat, and Crystal had let her go. She sat up. Cathy stood with her back to the window, her red hair lit purple by the purplish snow light, a long-nailed hand on each of the girls. The creature had grown very tall. Looking up at her, Bridget thought that the creature's hair brushed the ceiling and left glittering trails. Now the creature was tiny. Bridget hadn't seen her change, but she was no bigger than a human hand, and she was cradling something in her two long, hairy arms. Bridget held out her arms to the girls. Crystal, still laughing, took a step toward her, but it was Cynthia she wanted, and she said the girl's name, although it wasn't the one she'd given her. Cynthia, Cynthia, stay here with me. Cynthia's eyes were very wide; her pale, almost invisible lashes made them seem to bulge. Both her fists were at her mouth. She pressed herself against Cathy, who was human-sized again, and mutely shook her head. Bridget was incredulous. She tried to stand but couldn't. Crawled across the floor until she could lay her hands on the girl's shoes. Please, she whispered, "You belong to me. I'm your real mother." Cynthia threw her arms around Cathy's waist and sobbed, "Mamma, make her leave me alone." Although Bridget didn't see her move, didn't will her own body to move in response, she was suddenly not touching the child any more. Cathy was between them, and the thing Cathy had been carrying was now in Bridget's arms, hard and lifeless against her aching breasts. "Here's your child," the creature hissed. "Here's your child to suckle and raise. Here's your child to love." Bridget looked down. In the crook of her arm was a stick of wood, the shape and size of an infant, carved with features like those of the infant she'd lost long ago and imagined ever since. Sweet, silent rosebud mouth, placid eyes, gentle little hands and feet. It had no life, she knew, but it had been endowed by glamour with the suggestion of life, and that was good enough. That was even better. Cathy and the two girls were gone. Both of them changelings, neither of them hers. Bridget was alone with the image of the baby, seductively carved and painted and polished. She opened her shirt, and eased her erect nipple into the baby's mouth, which was open just enough to receive it. The mouth made no sucking motion, and she had no milk, but the baby was easily satisfied. She lowered her own lips to the perfect forehead, which was warm and smooth and pleasing. Even though it had no life of its own, hi there, Crystal," she murmured. It was the only name she knew.
A powerful story from a lovely lady. You will be missed, Melanie. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments where I will find them on the Triple F website. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode. Until next week, same time, same place, hopefully different beverage. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.